0: Good evening, this is Naziati T. Muhammad Yaqob, and this is a podcast on what happens to the future of architecture education. We could also ask what happens to the future of education in general because as a reference to the recent article by one of National University of Singapore, Vice-Chancellor. In his article, and in nus covaidcom regarding academics and pandemics, COVID-19 universities and higher education by Tan Eng Chai, he talk about interdisciplinarity as a focus. In this paragraph, it leads me to to talk and discuss further about the role of universities and in particular, Department of Architecture or School of Architecture all over the world and architecture education, of course. In this particular article by Mr. Tan Ng Chai, they talk about the pandemic, accelerating changes in a global economy where universities have a role and duty to make sure this generation of students will not become a lost generation. His concerns is how can this be done in a complex world that is undergoing rapid change and growing more uncertain each day is the challenge facing university leaders today. So he he said that this has to be tackled and faced head on. In the National University of Singapore, he said they are looking at how they could nurture the attributes of adaptability, agility, and resilience in their graduates, and to reimagine the student experience, and expand our curricula in the areas of interdisciplinary knowledge and skills. He said that while some of our students already benefit from workplace exposure, an extension of the current problem-based learning approach will lead to sustained immersion in real-world projects, labs, and internships. He also added that the pandemic has brought, and this is slightly conclusive, and this is something that I would like to expand upon. He said that the pandemic has brought a crystal clarity to the role that universities play, and to find solutions to humanity's most pressing problems, we need talented individuals who have the breadth and depth of knowledge and skills, the ability to synthesize and think across conceptual and technical boundaries, and the dedication to work swiftly and efficiently and he concluded while that he need multiple interconnected networks of talent in his community and ours in asia and beyond so why i'm reading about what he has to say is because another notable gentleman mr Keng soon which is a, one of the professors in the architecture school he talked about the the merging of architecture school to engineering school or engineering faculty and i posted in the facebook about this because this had been talked before by previous vice chancellor in 2019 and 14 at university of malaya and at that time we were talking about It was discussed even in the faculty meeting about um, whether we should be absorbed into engineering faculty, or the business and economics faculty, or the humanities faculty. I did have a conversation with an architect colleague um, just today, and of course the the, uh, logical thing is to absorb architecture into engineering. And... University of Malaya Architecture School was from engineering in the beginning. It started there. However, we know that architecture is the art and science, and art you cannot deny, or arts, actually. Um, and a lot of architecture stems from the humanities, learning about philosophy, theory, learning about urban planning, the condition of the human, human environment human and environment, and social environment, culture, context, urban planning, urban design. Architecture, we learn about a lot of things because we have to see the bigger picture. And yet, you know, like what uh, Taneng Chai said just now was the length and breadth of it all. And architecture does that. That is the nature of the architecture graduate. Or architecture students, or architect in general, unless they want to specialize in one area and not really um, contend with the bigger picture. So I did mention that um, the merging of the faculties, in in sense, um, is something that they want to do so that that. Could be more autonomy within the different faculties in the university, as I recalled it, is modelled after some un- universities in America, and this will lead led me to think about the academic, because it it also touched on what um, Mr Tan said earlier on the uh, adaptability of how we need to um, be more resilient, because it is a a competition. If you're an academic and you don't really get the uh, grants and get the projects and get PhD students, um, uh, candidates, postgraduate students to be part of your planetary system you are the sun and they revolve around you and they revolve around you in many ways. One is as a resource of expertise. One is your you're, um, you're bringing in the projects and you're creating projects and those projects are relevant to society. And... If you bring in a lot of income or you bring in a lot of grants, you will have more planets revolving around you. And then you'll be seen as someone who can actually contribute to the university and attach to the university in in many ways because you're bringing in some of your income or percentages of your income. It is like that, actually. That is the model that many of the academics have to aspire to to sustain themselves as an academic in the future. i like to transpose this, or maybe the right word is just to pose it, to the question of why all learn at a university? Why can't you learn anywhere? Why do you have to learn architecture in a university? Or a college, or a school of architecture. Now that you're going into um, digital digitalization, or whether need to go to physical uh, physically to a classroom. Of course, for the architecture studio, we can run it. We can run it, like what Mr. Tan mentioned just now try to create programs that there is face-to-face learning or to be physically at site and together in a social interaction, like a group discussion or the studio programs or site visits. But also you can also conduct it online where it comes to -to one-to-one tutorials or group discussions. As the nature of the pandemic, uh, limitations of what we can do, and what we have to respect, um, with regard to this, you don't really, you have to really be mindful of being in close proximity with each other. This new practice of the School of Architecture ask questions. What is the most fundamental thing that is necessary for us to meet face-to-face? And a few months ago I came to the conclusion that the site visit is very important because of the the observation that a uh, student of architecture need to do um, in regard to the context, the observation in terms um, of moving through the environment or the site and going through clusters of buildings or blocks and streets and examining physically. And then I started to think about an architect can imagine. When you give him a plan or her plan, they can imagine the spaces that they're going through. And um, you could actually you could actually teach students of architecture from the very beginning how to imagine that. Going through a program that or an exercise in the studio regarding um, scale, and drawing. It's actually being able to do representation of that scale or that imagination in a drawing form. And that is the crux of it all, where students of architecture practice this every day, every week, until they're very good at it, at drawing. And that's the crux of it all, really, because they have to be able to Draw and communicate that idea to another person. If that is being, if we're able to do that online, then why the need to be actually be meeting up at all? When you can actually teach people that way. So when we think about the bigger picture of why do you need a university? The only reason why you need a university now is the creden- credentialing aspects, is the accreditation of the course. Um, but we argue that um, we argue that if you're good enough, without even an accredited degree, that you could actually get a job if ultimately is about getting employed. What if your employer know that you're talented? You can show the work and you can prove in the drawing office or where uh, the workplace that you could be skilled in many ways and that you could do the job. And whether you studied in... Harvard or in the UC of Malaya or in a polytechnic, an obscure polytechnic somewhere. <laughs> doesn't make any difference because you can compete. And when Ta- Mr. Tan mentioned about this, we need talented inv- individuals who have the breadth and depth of knowledge and skills and the ability to synthesize and think across conceptual and technical boundaries. That is actually the bottom line, really. Whether you are skilled in that way. Whether a person has all that qualities. And can compete. You can compete with yourself, and you can compete with others. You can compete. When you can compete, meaning you have this... Your your abilities benchmark with others in a way. Is that a correct word? Word, is that a correct word? Or your abilities or your talents is what is needed to get the job done really. In this uncertain times. Somebody who is, like he said, efficient and works swiftly will be highly sought after. The employer will have a lot of possible candidates to do the job. It is the employer's market during difficult times. You'd want to be really skilled and compete. So, yeah, coming back to this need for a university is only about the accreditation, the credentials. But that is based on the demands of society, when society decided, no, I would not really, yeah, I know that you're from Harvard, or, but can you do this? Or, you know, if you are highly talented and, and you're not even from a good school, you know, it's like the perception of a good school becomes like at the back of the mind already. And what is a good school? And then you delivered and just say, theoretically, hypothetically, you schooled yourself. You were a learner from anywhere, from everywhere, the school of life. You learned from masters or mentors that give you the right, or share with you the right knowledge. You worked and learned together. And the only thing in universities now is that they ask whether you have a PhD so you can be a prof- uh, an employee at the university. Now, at one point, you must have a PhD. Before you, you have a master's, you can enter, but at this point, you have to have a PhD. And what is a PhD. A PhD is not about the paper, PhD or the certificate. A PhD is about that person who is expert on that and knowledgeable on that subject. And when you think about a subject, you think about that person being able to profess in that subject, being able to resolve the problems associated with that subject. That person able to articulate the knowledge, the theories the philosophies, the concepts, the understanding of that particular subject. And others will sought, will seek that person to clarify, to help solve the problem. If that person is able to work with others, collaborate, that would be great. And um, we're talking about universities and seats of learning, And now it becomes unbalanced. You have the professors on the other side. If they seek to um, better themselves, if they seek to learn from others, even at the age of 50, you know, um, even at an age when they have finished their PhDs 20 years ago, something like that, then they will still be relevant, they will be that sun in that universe with the planetary systems, uh, with the, you know, the planets revolving around, the planets of post-graduates and projects revolving around. And they can achieve by their own credentials, by their own um, self-sufficiency. You know, their self-sufficiency and independence. So, when we think about education, when we think about higher learning and universities, some thousands and universities all over the world, are yeah, thousands, maybe yeah, I could say thousands, can I? Estimation of thousands rather than millions, of course. But, um... Slowly, um, you can feel it, the competition from universities, private universities that don't have allocations as much as public universities. You can feel that it's much more acute to stay afloat. They don't have the funding, and they have to stay relevant and create the programs, create interest for people to join And for them, it's more critical. Sometimes it's just the numbers game at the end of the day. So when we go back to this question about the future of universities, the future of architecture education. It's all intertwined. For the architecture graduate, they just want to be part of society in which they can contribute, and skilled, and part of in um, the interest in architecture to and, you know, whatever, they could be project manager, they could be an architect in a design office, but that's for the architecture graduate, the need to actually be part of this world that they thought about, for some of them they decided to do other things because architecture graduates they got a lot of talent and many skills and many uh, parts of design for example uh, interior design or doing contracting work design and build or um, doing interior yeah I said that product design or maybe filmmaking art so it's just their nature of whether they, they want to explore these other things. Um, there's also the expectations of the family on where they should go with their architecture degree. But what about the academic? Because they stay around in the universities. For me, I'm, I've gone through 23 years of academia. And I'd like to ask you this question about the academic. For a a young academic who is facing 23 years ahead of them, is it promising? Is it just getting publications done? Is it just what is the idea here? What does it mean to have a networking Of collaborators, of postgraduate students. What is it that they have to better themselves at in order to um, be more relevant in academia? I think academia is my conclusion in the next few minutes about academia is that it is very fragile. We actually discuss about um community learning about um, doing i mean about not really having um, one campus but campus can be anywhere we actually discuss about it with other like minded individuals, be they architects or um industrial engineers or other engineers or economists we we did discuss that um in our chat group and and it's possible that you can you can uh, do bartering or you can have the concept of um, doing something for in uh, exchange for doing something or teaching in exchange for other goods and services and they were mentioning about blockchain as one of the way to do it. Um, I'm not good about blockchain or anything of that but I see the uh, idea of online teaching or the idea of a uh, taping a uh, videotaping or even audio taping lectures and sh- and making available or b- broadcasting it or making available or even charging a fee for it if it's a proper, proper cause to make a group of people skilled as possible you know and um, I used to think that with with a you can actually run an architecture course with just five people yeah I actually think that one person per year and then the rest you run it with other people that you could call part-timers or um, experts, consultants, coming in to add in the content or the um, to make the program a complete architecture course. If that idea of just five persons could could actually run a school of architecture, it's true, if that idea is true, then, you know, Um, It's all a matter of credentialing. It's all a matter of being certified by the board of architects or being accepted by the employers, the quality of your graduates. It also depends on whether people want to sign up for these courses, whether they seriously think that signing up for these courses will lead to an architectural degree. But when that architecture degree is not relevant anymore in the future, then there won't be any relevance of universities. That is for certain. And universities that grew from the Middle Ages, universities that grew from churches, I mean the monks who learned from antiquated knowledge, because they were the one who can read, the others cannot, and how the printed um, the ability to print helped to propagate knowledge. The universities came from that. the Cambridges and the Oxfords. It came from those entities which came from the church. Of course, we can debate about the, Orient, um, the Eastern one. Ibn Sina and the and, and, uh, Ottoman Empire and, so, and others, but I'm just giving only one scenario here. And it was the need to learn, really. Credentialing came later. Architecture as a profession came later. Engineering as a profession came later. Only in the 20th uh, century, when we had associations and boards, for engineers and architects and it's very very fragile very precarious so i'd like to end this the session with you and i like some feedback if you would like to to start a discussion on this my email is N-A-Z-I-A-T-Y Naziaty at gmail.com. And if you could drop me a line and we could discuss whether maybe we could have a chat over the podcast regarding this matter. Thank you very much for listening.